Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Red Shirt Friday. We wear red shirts every Friday to say thank you to those who risk everything to protect our lives and ensure our freedom. And now what we do otherwise on this particular program is connect food producers to food consumers, connect rural and urban America. And I'm really looking forward to this Red Shirt Friday because I think many of the challenges that we have, not only in the United States but around the world, is that folks have lost sight of or possibly never really knew true history. And I've got a history teacher. It's kind of been a a theme of education all week, Gordon Cones. And do you qualify as being a, a history teacher 30 years? Is that enough time to qualify you as being an actual teacher? Well, I, I, I think so, yeah. Um, 31 years in the classroom, and um, I've done seven years uh, substitute teaching. Um, I started being interested in history when I was probably about four years old. Mm. Uh, there was one book in my home besides the Bible, and it was a big book called Life's Picture History of World War Two. Oh, my goodness. And I must have looked through that book and, and read the captions and what little text I could read uh, a thousand times. And I think that's what got me hooked. Just, and I've just been wait a minute, Gordon, sorry to interrupt you, but just think how the world would be a different place if all parents would get their kids picture history books instead of PlayStations. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I, and I've, I've, I have a memory. I remember when I was about four years old, five maybe, I was looking through that book. And my mother saw me and realized what I was doing. And I remember she said, you know, war is a terrible thing. And, and you know, that stuck with me all these years. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just a little little editorial. but um, And, of course, she was right. It is a terrible thing, but it's been part of us for a long time. I failed to, to uh, give you proper credit. LaGrange, Georgia is where you're coming to us from. Yeah. With a little stay in Auburn, Alabama at some point in time in your life, huh? Yes, I went to Auburn in uh, 1971 as a freshman and uh, stuck around and got a master's and left Auburn in 77 and came to LaGrange. I I spent my entire career with the Mm. same school system. Wow. um, Which is a little odd. It doesn't happen today, just saying. No, no, people tend to move around a little bit more. Yeah, Auburn's a great school. I've actually spoken on campus at Auburn. It's a land-grant. But, yep. uh, of course, everybody, if you don't live in Alabama, everybody just thinks about it as a football power. But it's really a good school. That's right. It's, it is. It's a very good school. I was I was, very, I was fortunate to be able to go to Auburn. Um, and, uh, of course, the other school up the road is, we don't mention it a lot. I don't know of another school in Alabama. I have no idea <laughs> what you're talking about. That, that makes my heart grow. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's also really a pretty good school, but we don't talk about that one. Gordon, I have a 15-year-old that is uh, going to go somewhere to play softball. I mean, she's going to make it happen. And uh, she's going to major in psychology. She's right at this moment in time. She's got her life planned out. She's majoring in uh, psychology so that she can do sports psychology and a minor in animal science. So she narrowed down the top 100 schools that, number one, have a good softball program, uh, number two, have a good psychology school and still have to be a land grant. Guess who's in the top five of that 
criteria. I would guess Auburn, Auburn University. How, man, you should have been a math teacher. You deducted <laughs> that really quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. That's, uh, you know, Auburn sports program is, is outstanding. Of course, right now, of course, we're all sort of in limbo uh, about what sports will be in the fall. Uh, but, you know, it's we're, we're hopeful anyway. That's so, great, though. She'll like it. So Get back, we'll find That's out. Right. But I'm back to four years old, becoming infatuated with history. I just find that intriguing. Well, I have to tell you, I had a, uh, and I, I'm, I'm 67, um, and uh, I had one brother who's a good bit older than me. He's 81 now. But along with the, the book, uh, I had a cousin who was in the Merchant Marines during mm-hmm. World War II. Which sounds kind of funny because you think of the, you know, sure. that he was much younger than me, obviously. And he had done a, I guess you call it a tour of the D-Day beaches. After D-Day, he had landed, I'm sure, with cargo somewhere in France. Mm-hmm. But anyway, my cousin had brought back a, a, a German helmet. Um, and this was sort of a, a a family, not I won't say heirloom, but it was, you know, I would take it out and look at it. You know, it was just fascinating to me. Um, and my brother still has that helmet. Um, I can't pin him down. I think someday it might become mine. But we we found out there was actually a Luftwaffe helmet, a German Air Force helmet. Um, and you could still read the serial number on the inside, stamped and. So, so I had the book, and then uh, the helmet was packed away. I wasn't allowed to get it out much when I was younger, but you know, I, I think both of those things together is what kicked off the fascination. That sounds incredible. I, I was in. A, th- this is just a strange story. I was speaking in Western Australia, in uh-huh. Perth, and then I went south about 150 miles and spoke in a little town that has a an agricultural high school. And I stayed with some friends. Uh, Esther Jones has been far too long since I've seen you. I hope I see you soon if you happen to be listening. And I said, you know, tomorrow is uh, Red Shirt Friday. Do you have any anybody has anything about uh, veterans or know a veteran that I could get on the program? And she said, well, I don't know if I know a veteran, but this guy down the street, a farmer, he was down the road probably 20 miles, had converted one of his buildings on the farm into a world war ii museum wow gordon he had so much stuff in there he just just on the farm he just decided this is what he's going to do he started gathering things and people could come and look at it and he had that helmet you're talking about and not the very not the very one but uh, you know he had stuff from all sides of world war ii just in the middle of nowhere and and if you've been in one of these places that really brings you back into that period of time it does it feeds your thirst for more information oh absolutely absolutely i went to um when i was studying in london i went to uh of course in time out, time out. Uh, auburn okay. london i got lost i thought you went to school at auburn you went to school in london too well i did after i've been in, i'm sorry after i've been in lagrange about 10 years i got an opportunity to go to to school uh, overseas and I went to a, a school called King's College, which is in London, and they had a special major for master's degree only, but special major in war studies, uh, which is really military history. Right. And so I, I got to do that, and we traveled 
actually the school sponsored some pretty interesting trips. And then, of course, I got to travel on my own some. But um, I'll never forget the first time I went to the Normandy beaches and the Normandy cemetery, mm-hmm. the D-Day, D-Day cemetery. Um, and, you know, there's just, there's no way to describe the emotions. I mean, you just can't. Just because you know what it is and why all those graves are there. Um, but it was just it was just an amazing experience for me. But something kind of interesting with all the talk now about monuments and memorials and, and you know you know what's going on. Uh, about five miles from the Normandy Cemetery, the American Cemetery, mm-hmm. I stumbled on something interesting. There's a German cemetery, and I was just shocked. Um, I, I just actually stumbled on it by accident. And there's a small visitor center, and there are German crosses, and there are German soldiers uh, buried. This is in French soil. And I thought, now that's interesting. You know, you you might have thought that with the bitterness and the terrible situation that the French went through with the Germans, you might have thought they would have demanded that those those graves be moved after World War II. But it was there. It's maintained. It's... um, the crosses of the old Iron Cross, the Maltese Cross, over the graves, uh, not nearly as big as the American cemetery. But I thought that was sort of interesting, that the French allow uh, or allowed that cemetery to be built and maintained and, and so forth. Um, it, it just shows, you know, time can time can do funny things to history. I mean, it, it, it makes us forget a lot in some ways. Mm, yeah, uh, isn't that evident today? But I have to interrupt you. Gordon Combs, my guest on a Red Shirt Friday, saying thank you to those men and women. While we continue to focus on World War II, what a golden opportunity to, to learn about World War II and the shadows of where Winston Churchill walked. That's incredible. We'll be back with more Gordon Co- uh, Combs after this. Right off the bat today, I want to give some exposure, shining a light on the genomics, the alleles that are present in these food animals, and your pets, by the way, to give us an indication of what genetic qualities will be passed on to the offspring. That's what Neogen does, looks at the genomes, lets you know what you have. In the case of Piedmontese, we know that the myostatin gene is present. It could tell you and has been telling you about coat color. It could tell you about polled traits could tell you about eating qualities. It's all about evaluating the genetics that are present and increasing the overall efficiency of food production. Precision Agriculture at its finest. Get more details about the light that is being shined upon the genetics at neogen.com. Welcome back to Roll Route. Trent Lewis on a Red Shirt Friday. My guest, retired history teacher from LaGrange, Georgia. Gordon Cohn. You ever been to Poolville, Texas? I've been to Poolville, Texas several times. Um, always treated like a king. Um, and of course, when you talk about history, um, oh my gosh, I mean, Texas, it's, it's, just, it's everywhere. Um, uh, a mutual friend, the first trip I ever made to Weatherford took me to the city cemetery. Mm-hmm. And uh, where and I'm a big I'm a Lonesome Dove fan. In fact, I just finished reading it for the fourth time. <laughs> I'll admit to that. Uh, but when I saw uh, Charles Goodnight's, uh, I'm sorry, Oliver Loving's grave and uh, 
and Bose Eichard, you know, who, of course, was a character also in Lonesome Dove, thinly disguised. But I, I just that just turned me on to that area. Uh, I mean, the history's all around. I, I didn't know at the time. A lot of people probably know now, but you know, Larry McMurtry based a lot of Lonesome Dove on real people. Yeah, real you, you're like three steps ahead of me. I was going to go there. That I, people who love Lonesome Dove, I don't think they recognize that it's really that story is based on true events from three different trails, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's um, I don't know. There's just something about that story. It just it, it sort of lifts your spirits, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it's not it's not all positive. I mean, there's some sadness about it too. And I guess some tragedy in it, but I think that's just a classic Western story. If you like the West, it, you can't help but love lumps of love. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's that was my introduction to Weatherford and Poolville and Peaster in that area, and it's just a great place. Well, the whole Texas Rangers were formed right there. That's where oh, it began. Absolutely. absolutely. And I know I ran across some some facts uh, later that. You know, there were times uh, in the mid-1800s and a little bit later that the, the ranchers and the farmers around Weatherford would be pulled into town. They'd put up barricades against the Comanche raids. and uh, I mean, it's just everywhere. You know, it's just fan- fantastic. Um, boy, I don't know which place I want to get lost. You've now stumbled on the era that I wish I lived in. If I could time travel, I want to be on, on the Chisholm yeah. Trail. Or maybe the Love Night Oliver Love Night or Loving Good Night Trail, but regardless, I'm gonna stay hooked on World War Two for today. But I can see you're coming back, Gordon, and we're not even halfway through today. That's right. That's right. I hope. <laughs> it, does it make a difference if you're studying World War Two and you're in England? Um, yes, absolutely. It um, it brings it home to you a lot more because it's just all around you. Um, statues and memories and um, just the whole the whole mindset of the British and, and I'll, I'll tell you something funny and this is this surprised me um, in a way even now World War one is still sort of the great tragedy and World War two was just sort of a follow-on to the end to the British especially the historians they'll tell you that uh, you know, World War One was really never settled, and so World War Two was just kind of kind of Act Two. Um, and of course, the British lament a lot. I, my professor, one of my professors, used to tell me that you know World War One broke us, and World War Two just literally finished us off as far as empire, um, financially, and a lot of other ways. But uh, I had a professor who was actually a uh, a child during the war, World War II, and he was uh, one of the kids that was moved out of London uh, and sent out to live in the countryside. And there were thousands of them during the Blitz. And he said, you know, the program was, the idea was, of course, to keep the kids safe during the Blitz, but he said it was not a great experience. He said, children, you were just put with strangers and uh, I remember he told me that, you know, some some farmers were just looking for farmhands more than they were trying to be patriotic and take care of the children. But he said it was a, a bad experience, and he still remembered a lot about it. Uh, but, yeah, it's just, just 
the war is everywhere. Uh, well, I, I want to follow up on that a bit, Gordon, because I'm 53. The older I get, I mean, when I'm in high school, I thought history was irrelevant. The older I get, the more I want to know. It's easy to learn about World War II. It's really tough. You have to work at learning about World War One. And right. World War One was brutal. World War One shaped a lot of um, cultural norms that maybe we've never recovered from. Right, right. And, and it was definitely the great tragedy. I remember uh, I saw a figure once that um, there was not a village or a town or a city in England that did not lose just huge numbers of of young men uh, during mm. World War One, and in fact, the British Army had a uh, a policy early in the war, World War One, that they would allow young men to volunteer as groups from various villages, towns, whatever, and they could train together, and then they would go to France together. And of course, you can imagine what happened in battles where you lost twenty and thirty thousand men in the afternoon. An entire village's young men would be wiped out. Hmm. You know, ninety percent casualties. Right. Uh, and so they saw pretty soon that that was not a good policy, and they stopped it. But you know, they said it was not uncommon for a small British town, English town, to lose every young man in one day. Um, it was just, it was just a slaughter. I mean, that's the only way you can, only way you can, you can term it. So. Do you agree with my premise that it's easy to find information on World War II? You have to work to find World War One. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, and, I think, and why uh, is that? Well, I think because it's closer to us. Um, it's. I, I think it just dramatic. Uh, in in the sense of drama, I think World War Two was just in our minds anyway, so much bigger mm-hmm. than World War One, and of course the, the distance in time. Uh, I was thinking about it this morning. I was born in 1953, and this seems almost impossible even for me to believe. But in 1953, the day I was born, um, you know, veterans of World War I uh, were still, you know, around, a lot of them. Right. And into my childhood, into my early years in grammar school, World War II veterans were young guys. They were in their 30s they were- and 40s. They were your kid, your friend's fathers. Yes, absolutely. Um, the first job I ever had was uh, was with a, a, a man who I remember. He told me stories. He landed at D Day mm-hmm. in uh, in June of forty four. He told me stories about uh, Normandy and the beaches. So you know, I think I've always told my kids, the students, that you know, time does it plays tricks on your on your mind. Um, you know, as I said, I was born in fifty three, so. The day I was born, there were still men alive in the United States who fought in the Civil War Three, but they were around, and there were thousands of people who had been born during the war. Um, and my grandmother used to tell me stories about conversations with her uncle, who lived down the road, who fought in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. You know, and so you you grow up with that being a lot closer in time than than it seems today for, for young yeah, people. Civil War today is ancient history. It's ancient history, exactly. And uh, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking this morning before you called. I thought, you know, my my grandchildren, the Civil War and and uh, World War Two even will be ancient history to them when they're our age. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think that you know we we have to really push it to get them interested in things like that. Yeah, you wonder. I mean, they think it's ancient history now, and I wonder if you go into a school system, into a history classroom, and you said December seventh, nineteen forty-one. How many kids? How many freshmen in high school would say, "Oh, oh, that was a bad day in the U.S." Yeah, not not as many as we as we like to think. You know, kids. Um, I, I'll tell you what we've done with history, and this is. I'll put this to testing, state-mandated type test. We're trying to teach history as facts, um, almost like math. You know, you learn how to, to add one and one, but we're just we're, we're hitting them with facts mm-hmm. that'll get them through these tests. The scores will look good. But the, the, the joy of it, of history, and the meat of it is being left out. The stories and, the, and just the color of history is being left out. And, and it's kind of sad to me because it, I, I've heard so many kids say, well, you know, history's boring. And it just tears my heart out when I hear that because I think history is anything but boring. But you have to, it has to be approached the right way. Um, Gordon, I need to approach this the right way. I'm going to shut you down, but we'll pick it up and continue to talk about world history. Gordon Cohn. 30 years, 31 years in the classroom, seven as a substitute teacher. I think that would be a tough seven years, but we'll ask when we get back with more Roll Route, the second half after this. The Stand at Paxton County is a movie on Netflix. I suggest if you've got an hour and a half, you take the time to watch it. It's happening every single day all across this country. Animal rights activists working with local authorities to take animals. We've got to fight back. Watch The Stand at Paxton County. And then ask me. Then send me a note. Say, what do we do next, Trent? Welcome back to Roll Route. Trent Luce on a red shirt Friday, by the way. Gordon, I'm going to put you to the test, knowing that you're an Auburn fan and all. You wearing a red shirt on this Friday? <laughs> Actually, I'm not. Um, I don't own a lot of red shirts. Now, I do have a lot of orange and blue. Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine that. Today, I'm wearing a... An old worn-out white T-shirt, but uh, okay. Um, let me put. Can I put the history professor uh, in a quiz? Sure. Who started the Red Shirt Friday as a simple, subtle tribute to soldiers and the troops? Hmm. Now that I'm, I'm going to have to defer on that one. <laughs> <laughs> the ladies auxiliary for the VFW at the end of World War II because they thought that when their men were coming home from the beaches of Normandy and France and Italy and the South Pacific, we should just wear a red shirt to let them know that we, we appreciate their sacrifice. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. That's in, I did not, I did, I did not yeah. know that. That's and incredible. it kind of died for a while, but <clears throat> 20 years ago I learned about it. I tried to do my part to bring it back, and I've worn a red shirt every Friday since. By the way, I also call Nebraska home. It's easier to wear a red shirt in Nebraska than it is in Auburn country. I'm just saying. Yeah, right. I understand that. Yeah. yeah sure. It's like telling an OSU cowboy wear a red shirt. Right. Right, uh, my, my, right. My my brother, um, my brother's a, a, has nothing but red trucks, uh. and, it, and, it, and it hopefully with the black trim because red and black's their color. But you know, he asked me once. He said, "Would you buy a uh, just out of curiosity? Would you buy a crimson 
colored truck. No uh, way. I said, nah, no, no, no. Yeah. That no, orange no. and blue sticker just doesn't, it, it clashes, you know. Yeah. Here's the real question, Gordon. If you won a crimson red truck, would you even drive it? If you were given um, one? If I really like the truck, I would call Mako. There's a Mako in Auburn, actually. Um, and for about 150 bucks. I could turn that crimson truck into a blue truck. <laughs> and uh, so the first trip, I, I would take the truck, and then my first drive would be to Mako and Auburn. And uh, we'd either go orange or blue. I don't know which. but You know, you could just sell the truck and get one orange and blue, right? There, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Um, uh, so moving on from our color fascination, I am learning that very few people, including my own three daughters, know much of anything about Japanese internment camps during World War II in the United States. And uh, I I am on to this because I read a piece about it, and I was like, how many people know what really happened to American citizens who happen to be of Japanese descent, and most of those are in California. How many people don't know that, Gordon? Well, I think a lot of people don't. Um, I don't think people realize what what happened. Um, And and it was not our finest hour. I I think what people do know about it, they've heard. You know, it was not a pleasant thing to try to remember. Uh, But there again, I think you have to, you have to try to understand the times. You know, December 7th was just an absolute shock to the American system. I mean, it was it was just an incredible blow uh, on the Sunday. And within two or three months, the president, President Roosevelt, said, we're going to divide the country into military zones. And he put Army generals in charge of those zones. They were sort of internal military zone and those generals had authority to do whatever they needed to do to to, quote protect the homeland and one of the things they did was to decide that japanese americans were a threat or could be a threat and so they built the camps and uh they were they were internment camps that that was about two months after pearl harbor they started to build the camp and um is it accurate to call them slave camps? No, um, and, and to be totally honest, I don't think it's fair to call them concentration camps. Although, in a sense, that's what they were in the in mm-hmm. the exact sense of the word. Um, there was no intent to mistreat or or certainly torture or abuse the, the people that went. Um, they were self sufficient. They had schools. They had clinics they had they raised their own food uh they were crude they weren't the most comfortable places in the world but there was i don't think there was any intent to to uh you know to absolutely mistreat the people who went there uh looking back you know again it was not our finest hour absolutely not uh, uh, these gordon were, if i could interrupt just for a second okay. because the only thing i have to relate to is obviously 9-11, which anybody who was part of a December 7th Pearl Harbor attack, uh, they correlated the two, and and I believe it, it shook the conscience at a, probably a similar level 
at that time. And I know what the next week was like and how people just had this anxiety about anybody Muslim. I also know that you can talk to World War II veterans and they still will refer to Japs as a negative oh, yeah. sentiment. So I, I'm thinking that while the intent may not have been to uh, put people in, in Japanese American citizens of Japanese descent in, in these internment camps and mistreat them, the public sentiment of the day was that they were the problem. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The threat. I, I don't think there's any way you and I or anyone uh, not of that generation can imagine mm-hmm. the the, uh, the hatred and the just absolute uh, despising of, of Japan that, that we saw. I, I, I talked with the guy, an older man, it's long dead now, but he was actually on the island of Kenyon when the atomic bomb was delivered and loaded. Kenyon is the base where uh, the Enola Gay took off for the first bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. And I remember I asked him once, I said, you know, did, was there any sense of when it when it was over and you realized what had happened, was there any sense with you guys, that, you know, gosh, that's horrible, look what we've done. And he just looked at me funny. He said, are, are you kidding? And I said, well, what? He said, you know, we wanted there to be more bombs. You know, we, he said, of course, everything was top secret, but he said, we hoped that that was just one of many. He said, you just can't imagine the, the feeling we had, the emotions. Uh, against the Japanese, he said, "We, we, we wanted a bomb for every city and town." He said, "That's that's the way we felt about it," um, and and so I, I I don't think we can imagine that, you know. I don't think we can we can imagine that. I uh, I, I'll, I'll if you don't mind, I'll tell you a little yeah, side story. That's great. Um, the man who was in charge of the air war against Japan at, in the latter part of the war was a guy named Curtis LeMay. And General LeMay um, did not want to drop the the, the, uh, the atomic bombs. He wanted to firebomb uh, Japan. He wanted to, he told the president, if you will let me, I will burn the Japanese islands south to north to ashes. He said, you know, the Japanese live mostly in wooden and paper even homes. He said uh, they actually practiced taking armaments out of bombers so they could load, overload firebombs. And General LeMay uh, begged President Roosevelt not to use the bomb because he knew that the war would be over pretty soon. He said, let me burn it out. Now, we're talking, this is in 1944, 1945. He said, I will burn Japan so there's nothing left. And they actually practiced. They built mock villages and towns and practiced bombing runs with firebombs, you know, to make sure that they were effective. Uh, and just a personal note, um, many, many years ago, I had a cousin uh, who I didn't really know very well, much older than me, but anyway, he married General LeMay's daughter. Uh, I never met the cousin, never met the daughter, uh, but anyway, it was kind of a funny family connection. Uh, but LeMay just LeMay said, let's, let's just burn the whole place, burn it all. And, and that was sort of the mood. I mean, people wouldn't have cared. I don't think they would have cared at all. 
Yeah, I mean, the resentment. Well, first of all, you have Pearl Harbor, the first real attack from a foreign interest on our soil. And then you have Roosevelt, who starts his fireside chats, keeping everybody lathered up by their big old radios every night by the fire. And just continued to fuel that. Yeah. But I will say one of the shocks of my life, um, I knew another gentleman who was in the war. He was a Marine. Um, He served on the USS Alabama, uh, went through combat in the Pacific, and was actually part of the occupation force when the war was over. Mm -hmm. And he he really threw me a curve. One day I, I sort of was setting him up. I said, well, when you went into Japan and they, of course, had surrendered, I said, how did you feel? And he, he said, you know, I never had any other attitude than, you know, this war is over. They're glad. He said, don't let anyone kid you. They were glad. They had fought like tigers, but the day it was over, it was over for them, for the Japanese citizens. And he said, I never felt uncomfortable. He said they were almost, in a sense, welcoming. He said, I think they were so glad the war was over. Mm-hmm. especially after the two atomic bombs. He said, right. I think that they didn't see us necessarily as saviors, but they saw us as that we would be okay, or they would be okay. Uh, I remember he told me a story. He said he was walking down the street, and there was a Japanese traffic cop who had a sidearm, uh, a holster on his belt. And this this gentleman told me that he said, you know, I felt really funny when I walked away from him. Because, you know, these people sure. have been our enemies. For, yeah, I mean, he's been our enemies for all these. And, and this man obviously had a, a sidearm, and I was turning my back and walking away. But he said, of course, nothing happened. Uh, that so means that we have to take a break. And I'm just regrettingly telling you, we've only got one segment of Gordon Cone left. The good news is I do this every day. I can tell you already, we won't get it all in. He'll be back. But right now, we'll be back after the break. Roll out after this. Now let's talk about certified Piedmontese. I allude to it earlier. It is the way to increase profitability. It is the way to capture more of the consumer's food dollar. And what you do is utilize the Lone Creek Cattle Company Piedmontese genetics. A few health protocols, which are all standard. And then you qualify for the certified Piedmontese premium, which, by the way, is $180 per head over feeder calf price steers and heifers same price plus 180 dollars per head if there's a better deal out there you let me know about it performance calving ease has been tremendously good at our place get details by contacting marlin will at www.lonecreekcattleco.com welcome back to roll route trent loose alongside my new history buff my Old one passed, the late great Chick Bishop from Litchfield, Illinois. Gordon Cohn is here today. Chick Bishop, you, you just remind me of Chick. He was a retired teacher as well, but he started West Quest, and he he was just he was bringing the cowboy spirit alive and well and reminding people about the code of the West. And uh, our conversations, Chick was really like I am, and that's why we shared this kindred spirit, just loved the, the whole Chisholm Trail era. By the way, Litchfield, Illinois is just down the road from where Charlie Goodnight was born and raised and is buried. He's buried there, too. So um, 
I've been looking for you, Gordon, for quite some time. So thanks <laughs> well, for thank showing you. up. Yeah. Two and and half you years. found me. Yeah, you Two. found me on a Friday morning. Two and a half years later, I found you. Um, so I have been to Tokyo. I've walked the streets of Tokyo, and it, it is the probably the most memorable place I've ever walked a street of, and, and that would include Melbourne, Australia, where I walked the street and people were treating me like uh, Crocodile Dundee when he was in New York City in that particular movie. But in Tokyo, it was totally different. There was this level of respect and, and admiration, and they love Americans. They love the cowboy, and it's just such a unique thing knowing what you just walked us through. And, oh, by the way, our number one beef trading partner in the world, Japan, by by dollar value. And so here we are just two generations later, and obviously they've moved beyond all of what we've just talked about. Right. Well, I think a lot of that, frankly, goes back to Douglas MacArthur, um, who was obviously a brilliant general, uh, a quirky man, not the most popular man, really, uh, in the military in World War II or later. But MacArthur went into Japan. Uh, he was in charge of the occupation. And he quickly figured something out, and that was that the emperor was considered divine. Um, a lot of Americans, and I think understandably, and I'll just be blunt about this, a lot of Americans wanted to, you know, to see Emperor Hirohito at the end of a rope, let's face it. And MacArthur said no. That would be a terrible mistake. Um, these people consider him divine. Uh, and in fact, when he announced the surrender of Japan, or the upcoming surrender, imminent surrender, that was the first time, uh, this was, I guess, August or September of 45, the first time most Japanese people had ever heard his voice. Uh, they were not allowed to, to look at his motorcades. When, when his motorcades drove through Tokyo, they had to turn their backs because he was a god. And MacArthur saw and was advised, uh, if you put the emperor on trial and execute him, let's say, you're going to have one one big, massive problem. And MacArthur was smart enough to say, well, then we won't do that. And he actually developed a pretty good relationship with Hirohito. Uh, now, of course, they did try for war crimes, some of the generals and so forth, but MacArthur was smart enough to know that there's no sense, basically there's no sense in kicking them when they're down. You know, we can develop a relationship and create a country here that we want as an ally. And so you have to give him credit for that. Uh, he was, he had a big ego, but he, he could also listen to, to good advice, and he did. And I think that's what created the Japan of today, you know, I, in I, a lot I, of ways. Gordon, I also had a sense, and I don't know this. This is just my women's intuition, which really goes awry a lot. That, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we talk about the United States, and we're not real good at teaching history. I had a sense that there was a little black blacked out part of Japanese history too that the Japanese absolutely. folks got absolutely they don't they don't like to talk about it they don't dwell on it they don't study it um, and if you don't mind me I'll kind of in a, in, in a related way I used to do some travel with kids to Europe 20 years ago or so tour groups we did some mm -hmm. exchanges and one of our exchanges was to Germany and we stayed in a little little town outside Munich and, uh, of course, the kids, you know, were with host families. I was with the host. And uh, one day my host said, what would you like to do tomorrow? 
And I said, well, I'd like to take the kids, yours and ours, to uh, Dachau concentration camp, which is just near Munich. And I really threw a curve because they did not want to go. Mm -hmm. And I sensed that they didn't want to go. Um, and they were very, they were great hosts. They just went out of the way to be nice and take us to all the historic places. But they, I said, do you mind me asking why? And they said, he said, uh, we don't want our kids to see that. Now here's this, you know, it's, it's a, it's an open, um, you know, national monument now. But they, the same sentiment as the Japanese, they, they just don't want to talk about it. And they would just rather sort of skip over it and, you know, the bad time and so forth. And the Japanese, I think, had the same attitude. You know, we just have to go forward. But it's just, those are just bad memories of those countries. Uh, terrible memories, really, in some way. And they just didn't want to, they didn't want the kids exposed to it. I was, I was kind of surprised. Now, funny enough, they did take us. We went and had a good day. But, uh, it's just a different attitude. Um, uh, so, you know. in in your own mind, then, we have taught ourselves that we learn history as it is, no matter how brutal or hard it might be to face, uh, because we don't want to repeat it. Right. What does that say about the Japanese and the German kids that we just talked about in education? Well, I, I think that they, deep down, they, they know more about what happened than we think they do, but they just mm-hmm. don't want to go back to that time. I know, uh, you know, my son was in the army. He, he was actually stationed in Germany for a while. And the Nazi era is just something you don't talk about. You don't. It's actually illegal uh, to fly the swastika. Um, I think I saw the only legal swastika on display in Germany. Uh, a few years ago, I went to Berlin, and I went out to the Olympic Stadium, which, of course, was the Berlin Olympics in '36, and there's a bell. And the bell was used to open the games. Mm-hmm. And a huge bronze bell. And it does have, of course, a swastika on it because, uh, you know, it was the German games, the Nazi games. And that's the only legal, legally displayed swastika in the nation of Germany. And they, they rationalized that, well, it was an Olympic symbol, so we'll overlook that one and let that be displayed at the stadium. But other than that, that's, they just don't. They don't want to remember that. They don't want to talk about it. It's, I mean, it's a shameful time, you know, for them, for most young Germans especially. And I'm sure the Japanese, in a sense, have the same attitude. Sure. Naturally. Back to the swastika, you would wonder who would want to fly it. But again, well, that's based upon my bias and what I learned about Nazi Germany pre-World War II. Well, that, that's it. Um I know my son told me that when he was over near his base, there was the uh, the big, uh, I think they call it the Zeppelin field, where Hitler actually used to have rallies. And he said that it's still there. He said it's in disrepair, but it's still there. And in fact, the podium, you've seen it in pictures uh, with mm-hmm. him speaking, just tens right. of thousands of Germans. But anyway, the podium is still there. And tourists are allowed to sort of wander around. But he said that there's a policeman there, practically 24-7 so that no one can go up on the podium and oh, sure. hear and speak and, you know, give the symbols and signals. He said, absolutely illegal. He said, he said a German who's caught doing that can be arrested on the spot. He said, they're that sensitive about it. Yeah, or judged and juried on the spot. Exactly, exactly. Uh, 
I have a question for you that's somewhat related to this, but bigger, I think, in picture. I never have understood this. Mousy tongue. I think my numbers are close. 100 million. Stalin, 60 million. Mussolini, 40 million. Those are the deaths that are attributed to those individuals. Hitler, right. 6 million. And you can get everybody in the world to tell you about Hitler, and only 10% of the people can tell you about Stalin, Mussolini, or Mousy Tongue. Right. Why? Uh, Why is that? Well, I think the great enemies of World War II, of course, were Mussolini and, and Hitler and, and Hirohito. And in a funny kind of way, we almost forget that Stalin was our ally. And I think there was a long time when it was just not very popular to remember that Stalin, you know, was one of the allies. Stalin, you know, in a sense, helped us win the war. Some people say Stalin won the war for us. But I, th I think there was a period of time where we glossed that over. We, we just didn't want to... I think we didn't want to have to explain how a man who killed... I mean, I've seen estimates of 50 million of his own people, Russian, Soviet, uh, how this man was on our side. And, and for at least for a small period of time, he was he was one of the good guys. Um, you know, he, he had a quote once, and I may misquote this, but he said something like, if I kill one man, it's murder. This is Stalin. But if I kill a million men, it's just a statistic. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's how he looked at, at history. I mean, it was to him, one life, a million lives, if it got the, if it got the goal met, that's all that really mattered. You know, and I think we just, it's just hard to imagine that kind of mentality with Mao, with Stalin, with some of the others. I think human lives are just looked at um, a different way with them. Um, uh, in a totally unrelated note, but yet explain something to me that I've personally grappled with for a long time. You just explained why society accepts abortion. No, you did not. Stalin did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's statistics. You take the emotion out. Mm -hmm. You take the reality out of it, uh, and people, you know, we, we, we know it's there. You know, someone asked me once about the Germans in the concentration camps, and they said, how could people, you know, tolerate that? How could they know what was going on and allow that? Uh, for instance, when we went to Dachau, there's a neighborhood literally just across the road from Dachau that was there during the war. The homes are still, you know, the same. How could people live a block over from a concentration camp where horrible things were going on and not, you know, put an end to or try to? And I said, well, think about it this way. You know, the state prison in Georgia is down at Reedsville. Do I get up in the morning and worry about the horrible things that go on at Reedsville? No. I just try to make sure that, you know, my family and I don't go to Reedsville. And I think that's just human nature. We just put, we put those things out of our minds. Mm-hmm. And we just don't we don't we don't dwell on it like an abortion the same. We just we know it's there, we know it happens, it's obvious, but you know, out of sight, out of mind. Gordon Cohn, on your calendar the last Friday of every month you got booked <laughs> at this time, every every last Friday. Just saying. Well I'll, I'll I'll have to confess something to you. Uh, when I started Auburn I was a journalism major. I was not a history major, I switched uh -huh. later, but um all my life, I had a terrible habit. I, I love to talk, but I also <laughs> love to hear stories. And literally from the time I could toddle, if, if a, a person mentioned to me any connection with war or history, or I, would, I could 
I did yeah. have a little bit of a talent to get them started. Yeah, I, I've got a problem. I'm way, way, way over time. And I'll just close by saying Brian Thompson maybe outdid himself this time for helping me. <laughs> We've journeyed well, down the road connecting rural and urban America. Both of us remind you that all roads do lead to a rural route.